One of my favorite things about the Psalms is how the writers draw out the beauty and wonder of God. David and the other psalmists call out to God to ask for help, to mourn, to celebrate, and they do that by appealing to his nature. If you've got your Bibles, flip over with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 4. In every plea in the Psalm, there's in the Psalms, there's there's a reminder of who God is. It's this way of of approaching God that that helps us to love him. It's this way of approaching him, of remembering who he is, that helps us to love him. And as I'm beginning this sermon right now, I just, I, I'm just telling you, I haven't preached in like three weeks, so I'm going to do my best. Adam's in the back clocking me, so uh, you know, I've got some accountability back there. We're going to enjoy this passage together this morning. In enjoying this, we look at who God is, and we look at his love for us. We remember his love for us. I mean, think about why you fall in love with a person. Why do people fall in love? You consider the beauty of the person you love. We love because we know someone. It's impossible to love someone you don't know. There's no way to love someone you don't know. So when you start wondering about how you know you love someone, it's wise to recall who that person is. Why, why did I fall in love? Who, who is this person? The psalmists are constantly reminding themselves of who God is. It's a strategy to love God well. And if reminding yourself of the good draws you to love, reminding yourself of the evil leads you to dislike or, or even hate, right? When, when evil is seen in its true light, we always dislike evil. Even more, we always, we always hate evil. For, for God, though, there is no evil in him. There is nothing to dislike about him. There, there's nothing dislikable about God. He is all good, nothing to hate. He is only good. So every little thing that we recognize about God, every true thing makes us love him more. So when we turn to the Psalms and the psalmists are reminding us and teaching us true things about God, it should draw our hearts to love him. That's why I so appreciate the Psalms. As I read them, overflowing with true descriptions of God, I can't help but to love God more. One last joy of the Psalms, one other reason, is that they apply God's nature to our needs. The Psalms apply God's nature to our needs. In connecting the nature of God to our needs, it makes God real to us. Not some ethereal being that's far away, but we see that God is real and truly interacts with us. A temptation for us can be to view God in a cold, harsh, factual, intellectual way. But the Psalms connect the truth with our emotions. Facts and feelings aren't in a competition in God's kingdom. They're partner servants in God's kingdom. Facts and feelings, what is true and how we feel, how we respond to that, they help us understand God. We don't disconnect those two things to understand God. We join them together 
to understand God. And the Psalms do that. They help us do that, to join what is true and how we feel and hold them together. The Psalms don't hold up God's nature as a cold truth to know, but as a warm fire to enjoy. It's a warm fire that keeps us alive in the cold and dark nights. And don't you know the cold and dark spiritual nights? If you haven't had them, you will. And the question is, what will you do in the cold nights? Will you turn to the fire, the warm fire of who God is? Will you turn to the lies of the world? The Psalms help us turn to the warm fire of who God is. In Psalm 4, verse 1, this is what David says. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? What we see, even in verse 1, is that God doesn't let you down. God doesn't let you down. And that's maybe something you've heard in like a Christian pop song, is that God doesn't let you down. But it's a biblical truth. It's true. It's more than just a nicety that we can say. It's true. God doesn't let us down. God is is good. His nature is good, and that is good for us. When you look at verses 1 and 2, what do we learn about God here? Look at, look at what we learn about God in just verses 1 and 2. One, that he listens to us. He's righteous and is powerful enough. Look at the text. Just look at the text as I say this. He's righteous and is powerful enough to extend his righteousness to us. He's, he's righteous enough to make us righteous. Oh, God of my righteousness. He gives relief in distress. Man, isn't it nice to know a God who gives relief in distress? He listens. He's righteous. He gives his righteousness. He gives relief. But what do we learn about mankind here? <laughs> Look, oh, men. And here in, in the text, that oh, men is the powerful men. It's probably the wealthiest. probably those who were around David in the kingdom. What do we learn about mankind here? That they turn honor to shame. What God meant for honor, men turn to shame. Isn't that true? That people love vanity. They love themselves. They love what is on the surface. They love to be seen. And people seek after lies. The juxtaposition there of the goodness of God and the depravity of man is clearly on display. You can really turn these truths, though, about men, you can turn them over and they become proclaiming truths about God because God turns shame into honor. And isn't that good? Aren't you grateful for a God who turns your shame into honor? That God loves what is inside of a person. When, when people love vanity, God looks on the inside. Man, what a relief. God seeks after truth, not lies. That we proclaim that our God is good in every way. Where men and women, where people are depraved, where we do wrong, God does good. On our own, we go against everything that God is. It's the right way to view our sin. The right way to view our sin is not that sin is just another path. Sin is not just, well, I could go this way. It doesn't matter that much. It's something, not a big deal. Our sin is a direct contradiction of God's nature. 
when we sin, we are going completely against who God is. Our sin's no small thing. It's an affront to God himself. There's no little sin. All sin is a contradiction of God's nature. So David begins his song here, Psalm 4. He begins his song with a reminder that God doesn't let him down. Because God's nature is good. Even though men are evil, because God's nature is good, God is good. He does not let us down. And that is a sweet reminder. Can I I lead you this morning in, in just a call to enjoy God in this moment? To enjoy God's goodness, that God is good, and because he is good, he does not let you down. Consider that God is completely good. He neither does, nor feels, nor thinks, nor contemplates any wrong. He is through and through absolutely good. And no good exists outside of God himself. All good that exists now or has ever existed or will ever exist is a result of God's grace. All good, anything good, is a gift to us from the good God. And we can enjoy God in that. To consider that, to meditate on God's goodness, we can enjoy God in that. When we recognize the benefit to that for us, we can enjoy that. We can rest. We can rest because this God is in charge. He is in control. Nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. And this God loves you. This good God loves you. He isn't good and cold. He is good and warm. He is good and affectionate towards you. He makes himself available to you. So David is so bold here to ask him to answer when he calls. I'm not that bold with my wife. (laughs) You need to answer when I call. I don't do that. But here he's bold with God because God loves to answer when we call. God loves us. He's warm towards us. He's conf- My wife always, always answers when I call, so it's good. He's confident. David is confident that this loving and good God is listening to him. He has the confidence that God is listening. And Christian, you can have that same confidence today. Isn't it nice that this psalm written so long ago who God is in this psalm is who God is today. That he loved his people then and he loves his people now. 1 John 5 reminds us of this. This is, this is New Testament. This is after Jesus has come and we get this scripture, we get this word from God in 1 John 5 verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This is God's people who he has chosen for himself that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing this whole book so that they can know they have eternal life. And he says, this is the confidence. Hey, you who believe, you who have eternal life, this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is the confidence we have towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Church, we can go to God in confidence that our great joy should be to see his will done. And so we go to him in confidence God, I I want your will. We're praying his will. We pray knowing he is hearing us. 
And David has experienced this. David has experienced the mercy of this listening God. I mean, consider people were praying to rocks at this time. It's true today. People give their trust to money and to politicians, to those who cannot hear. But David has experienced the mercy of this listening God who has felt the relief. David has felt the relief from distress. He proclaims it. He's felt the relief from distress. And it's good to remember that our God gives relief to his people. If you need relief, I'm not sure there's anyone here who doesn't need some relief from something. If you need relief, where do you turn? Where does scripture lead us to turn? What is David's response when he needs relief from distress? He turns to prayer. He goes to God. He calls out to God, answer me when I call. Is that where we turn? It's what God gives us. And our God gives relief to his people. Whether in this life or the next, we can trust that we will receive relief from God. We're called to live by faith like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. We're called to live by faith, even if we don't get to see all of the good things that our faith is about, because we desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. That's what the writer of Hebrews teaches us, is that our minds are on the greatest good of being with God forever. And so when we cry for relief, we don't cry for relief like pagans who can only imagine what is here and now. We cry for relief as those who have an eternal home with Christ. So our prayers are different. Our cries are different. Our cries are a cry of longing for Christ, and that is true relief. So we live by faith, not as one withdrawn from today, Not as one withdrawn from pain, but as one victorious over today. As one victorious over pain. We live in relief from our distress because God is gracious to us. We live in relief from our distress because our God is gracious to us and hears our prayer. And hear what I'm saying. The relief from your distress may not be an immediate comfort to you. It may not be the raise you wanted or the healing that you think that you wanted. But it is always God's kindness to you. God's stance towards his people in this is a stance of grace. He loves to give grace to his people. And we love his grace. As we think about loving God, we, we love his grace, that he hears our prayer. That is, that is grace. And we embrace grace and live by it and pursue the Father by it. The presence and indwelling of the Spirit is how we do that. I mean, it is only because of the Spirit living in us that we are able to pursue God and call on him and trust for this relief. Even our access to the Father, this grace living, uh, this, the spirit living in us, even our access to the father is by grace. It is by grace we are saved. His gracious nature makes verse two a question 
of curiosity and not dread, a question of help and not fear. We can look at the hopelessness and atrocities of humanity and not feel overwhelmed by evil. Instead, we can feel hope in our Savior. I mean, doesn't, doesn't verse 2 seem relevant? How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I mean, that, is, that might seem like small things, but in our world we recognize evil is everywhere and we can look on evil and feel overwhelmed by it and say, how can it be this way? Or we can look on evil and say, we understand that sin is in this world and yet we can have confidence in a God who will overcome that evil in his time. He is coming back. He is not leaving the world this way. He will come to rule and to reign so we can feel hope in our Savior. We can trust in our Lord rather than in our own understanding. I mean, if we have our trust in chariots and horses and politicians and friendships and coaches and bank accounts and stocks, we will be let down. It happens to every generation. There has never been a generation not let down by the things of this world who claim to not let you down. But God never lets his people down. God is the same yesterday today and forever, and he does not let his people down. He always cares perfectly for us. He is always exactly good to us. We walk in faith and not fear through the trials and frustrations and unknowns of life with confidence in who our God is. Another way to talk about our confidence is is trust, right? Isn't isn't trust placed confidence? That we're saying, yes, God, I, I have confidence in you. I will follow you more than, I have confidence in you greater than anyone else. That's what trust is. Psalm 4 teaches us that God never lets us down. And because of that, because we have a God who we see in Psalm 4.1, because of that, we can put our trust in the Lord. That's a call from Psalm 4 this morning is to put your trust in the Lord. Whatever the world might be telling you to trust in and to give your faith to and to invest yourself in, here's the call from the Bible. Put your trust in the Lord. Look at verse 3 in Psalm 4. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Verse 3 is a great, the whole thing, I think all of, all of Psalm 4 is, is a great encouragement to the believer. But, but verse 3 is a great encouragement to the believer. God claims for himself a people. Man. We saw this in the letter Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14 he says, he gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself, what? A people for his own possession, a peculiar people eager to do good works. God has claimed for himself a people. He has always had a people set apart for himself. When God saves you, God claims you and God protects you. You now live in the shadow of his wings. 
And here's some good news. God doesn't lose what's his. I lose a lot of things. This would not be a good promise if, I, if you were mine. <laughs> you would be very uh, doubtful of the goodness of that promise. But because we are God and he does not lose what is his, we can be thankful for this promise. And we can be confident. We can place our trust in a God who claims us as his own. We can trust God because he has made us his own. We can trust God with our lives because our lives are his church. When we are saved, it is a surrender of our lives. Our lives are no longer our own. We are crucified with Christ. We're called to come and die, to pick up our cross, to follow after him, to give it all to him. It is his. Our life is his. Where else would you want your life? Who else would you want? Who else would you want in control of your life, with authority over your life, to call you his own? There is no one and nothing that I would rather have call me his own than God himself. It's good news for us. I know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, maybe some bad news is that I recognize that I'm a sinner. If the Lord calls the godly for himself, then I'm, I'm out of luck. Like, what happens now? I'm not a godly man. Right? I, I know that I have sinned. I know that I'm not righteous. That, that seems like a problem, but the good news is that God extends his righteousness to us. David doesn't find his godliness and his righteousness in his own works. He finds it in God himself. What I love about this is that we don't have to wonder how God feels about us. I heard a song recently that said, you're never going to be more loved than you are right now. Isn't that good and true? Isn't that? I mean, think about when someday when you're in heaven in the presence of Jesus and there is no more tears, no more crying, you still won't be loved more then than you are right now. He's already perfectly loving you right now. God is already perfectly loving you right now. God loves you perfectly right now. and He has already set the godly apart for himself right now. David's reason for considering God's possession of his life was God's nearness. God is near. Because God is near, I recognize that he has set me apart. He has made me his own. He is near. Because he is near, he calls and knows that God hears. That's how David is confident. I love Deuteronomy 4, 7. I, I may quote this one too much when I preach. I don't know, but I really like this verse. It's, uh, I quote it a lot. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The Israelites knew their privilege in having a God who was near. And David knew that privilege as well. David knew he had a God that was so near. What other nation, what other God is there that is so near to the people as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The Lord hears when I call on him. That's amazing. What was true for the Hebrews in prayer in Deuteronomy, what was true for David there in Psalms, is maybe even more true for us now. We have Jesus interceding for us. We have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. Romans 8 teaches us this. That we have access to the Father, that, that God is with us, that he is living in us. He has not got a temple far away that we have to go to, that he has made us his temple. What nation is so great? What peculiar people is so great? What person is so privileged to have a God so near as our God? 
we can trust that he hears us and cares for us. David trusted so fully, he even sends a warning to his enemies. <laughs> He's like, look, you don't want to mess around with hurting those that God set apart. Verse four, you might, you might be angry, but don't sin. You might be angry, but don't sin against us. Because David knew that there was consequence. There was consequence for going against God's people. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on, uh, in your own hearts on your bed and be silent, Selah. He always... God is always protecting his people. He always has the best in mind for his people. We might not always see it in the moment, and it may not always come to fruition. That that consequence and that protection may not always come in the moment. But David's pointing out here, if you want to be angry at God's elect, if you want to be angry at God's people, maybe you should go sit a few plays out quietly on your bed. (laughs) Just be careful. Ponder it quietly. But here's a good lesson for us in this. As we learn about that God cares and protects his people, here's a good lesson for us in this. That God's people can be gentle and lowly and servants. That we can be humble because our God is a roaring lion. Because he protects his people. Because he is in charge. Because he is sovereign. Because he will make justice. He will avenge his people. We can put our lives in his hands. We can be like David here, putting our lives in God's hands. And our enemies should know that our God will defend us. Our God will defend us. As we prayed for those in Afghanistan that are suffering at the hands of the Taliban, their God will defend them. The God of our brothers and sisters will defend them. And that may not look like their lives being spared. But our our God doesn't play in our time frame. (laughs) So we can trust him. It may not mean comfort in this life, but it will mean great misery for those who harm God's people, who come against God. What did God say to Paul on the road? He said, why are you, why are you persecuting me? God takes it personally when his people are persecuted. So be angry, <laughs> don't sin. David said, don't mess around. And in fact, Not only don't sin, but you need to get right. In fact, you should pursue godliness. He's telling his enemies, don't just just not be bad. Pursue pursue godliness. Go offer right sacrifices. Stop being selfish and rejecting God and do what he's commanded. David says, do what I've done and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I mean, this this is the hope for the sinner here, that they may be godly. And listen, that hope, I think that hope is is pregnant today. I mean, across the world, that hope is ready to be had. You can have the hope of godliness today and not because of work done by you, but because of work done by Christ. Godliness is available to you because of work done by Christ, that you can put your trust in the Lord for your hope and your salvation that we are offering right sacrifices of, of lambs and birds and bulls, but we have had a right sacrifice offered for us. The right sacrifice has been offered. The right sacrifice has been made on your behalf, and Christ calls you to believe for your salvation. 
that in our belief, we lay our life down. We say, we're not in control anymore. God, you are in control that our life is offered to the true sacrifice. We offer it as a sacrifice, as a, as a sacrifice of worship. God, we know you've already done all that is needed for our salvation. So we can trust in him alone for our salvation. The call for us from Psalm 4, verse 5, to put your trust in the Lord, is to trust in him for our salvation. I think there's probably people here right now or watching online or listening that your trust is in something other than the Lord. And it can be, it can be so deceptive to think we've got Jesus and. Like, yeah, I trust Jesus. But I'm really trusting all these things that I've done. And I'm really trusting my parents' faith. And I'm, I'm really trusting... I'm really trusting A, B, C, or D. And the call is to put your trust in the Lord and him alone. Nothing else can save you. Jesus is perfect. He, he has done nothing wrong. He is righteous. We've talked about that. He's completely good. When he looks on our sin, there's a consequence to that sin. And that consequence is death. And Jesus loved us enough to take that death on himself, our sin on himself, so that we could be saved. He was the perfect sacrifice. No other sacrifice was perfect. No other sacrifice could take his place. He was a human sacrifice, so he can take your place. He is God himself, so he was able to take your place. And he rose again so that death could be defeated and we could be with him forever. Nothing else does that. And nothing else needs to be added to that. That is all there is. And I wonder if today might be the day of your salvation where you say, that's all that I believe can save me. And I believe that can save me. I want the Jesus who loved me enough to come for me. I want the Jesus who loved me enough to see me in my sin And still said, I want you. Who saw me exactly right in my sin and said, I still love you. God calls you to believe in him for salvation. Will you do that today? Will you trust him for your salvation? I think the world is looking for the light of Jesus everywhere. If you look around the world, you could write the story of human history as a story of looking for the light of Jesus and finding all the wrong things, finding all the wrong answers, everything other than the light of Jesus. It's, this is the reason that we're looking for what only Jesus can give. It's, it's the reason that we turn, but we don't want Jesus. We don't want surrender. We want our way. It's the reason for sexual sin. It's the reason for political idolatry. It's the reason for social media addiction. It's the reason for insatiable consumerism. It's all of this is that we're looking for what only Jesus can give in the wrong places. But what our society and and too many times those in our churches are looking for is not Jesus. And none of this is new. David knew people who were looking for a savior. David knew people who were looking for a savior. Look at verse six. This is what he says. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. 
you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Christian, I, I want to I wanna beg you a little bit. I want to beg you, enjoy the light of Jesus. What is David calling us to? Enjoy the light of Jesus. The Christian life is not a life of drudgery and boredom and sadness. It is a life of joy in the light of Jesus. We have the best thing. Better than full bins of grain and vats of wine. It's the best. It's not what I would compare it to, but it's the best. A joyless Christian cannot be a thing. God has made us to enjoy himself. It's the design. Our vision statement here is that we want our community and world, our, our, those near and far, we want our community and world to be filled with all the fullness of God. You say, why, is, why isn't our mission statement, we want, we want everyone to be, be saved? Because God wants more than for people just to be saved. He wants them to enjoy him. God wants people to enjoy his nature and his goodness. So we want that too. We want people to be filled with all the fullness of God, that they would know the height and depth and breadth and width of his love. And that they would not be overwhelmed with the evil in the world to say, woe is me, but they would be overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the love of God to say, woe is me. And that's the type of Christian I want to be. That's the type of pursuit and desire of God that I want. A joyless Christian cannot be a thing. If we have true fellowship with God, we will experience joy in him. Fellowship with God will bring joy in our lives. So look on the light of his face. David calls, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Church, he has lifted up the light of his face. God has lifted up the light of his face. Jesus is the light of his face. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. Like the, the face of God has been lifted up. And now we have his word. That Jesus has given us his word. The word of God is now in our hands. We have his word. We have the word of God to enjoy at any moment. I think a really healthy question for us is where are we looking for our joy? Where are you looking for your joy at? If you could honestly answer that question, where are you looking for your joy at? Where do you expect to find joy in your life? I'm guessing a lot of you are expecting to find it in a boyfriend or girlfriend, whether that relationship exists or you hope it will exist. Many of us are looking for it in the accomplishments of our children or in our own accomplishments. Can you truly say that you're looking for joy in Christ? David could. And even he fell. Even he didn't, couldn't say that 100% of the time. It's a constant reminder that God is good, that he loves us, that he is the light of the world, that we should enjoy the light of the Lord. 
And church, I wonder how many times we look for joy in the same places the world does. We look like the world because we, we look for joy like the world. I was thinking recently, if, if Jesus is the best thing in my life, how could that be true? How could that be true that Jesus is the best thing in my life? Think about how Jesus commanded his followers in the Gospels. I think, would I give up my parents? If it truly came down to it, would I give up my parents and my wife and my children and my house and my friends to follow Jesus? Like, would I truly give that? And I'd like to think yes. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, cool, good. I'm glad we can all say yes. Yes, sure, yes, good. But based on what? Like, based on what are you saying yes? Like, why is God good enough to do that? Because someone told you? Because a preacher stood up here and told you that you should give up your relationship with your parents to follow Jesus if that's what it comes to? That's crazy. Because God is real and he is good and fellowship with him is the greatest joy of our lives. Can we say that? I mean, don't we reject, don't we so often reject fellowship with God that it makes the idea of giving up those who you love most seem, seem crazy and silly and like lunacy because you have no relationship with God. There's no fellowship. There's no dwelling. What would you gain if you lost everything else and only had Christ? You would be an empty person because you don't have Christ. There's no, there's no relationship. There's no dwelling. If heaven was your best experience with Christ, heaven would be miserable because you haven't experienced Christ because you never turn to his word, because you never turn to prayer, because when you do, it's like a two-minute thing that doesn't matter. It's a fail-safe. It's not the purpose of your life. It's not the reason for your existence. Man, that we might wake up in the morning and say, I want you, Jesus. David would wake up in the morning and say, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Their grain and their wine, their wealth, their status is what they aimed for. It was the purpose of their life. But for David, for God's people, for those who God has called apart to himself, for the godly, Jesus is the purpose of our life. Why is Jesus this good to me? Based on the fellowship I have with him, that I can dwell with him and commune with him. It's based on this real relationship that I have hope in eternal life. My hope for heaven isn't something that I only believe because I've read it and someone's told me I believe it because I've experienced Jesus today. I mean, I think about this week. I've enjoyed Christ in Hebrews and in James and Galatians and in Psalms and in prayer. And I've enjoyed his presence in serving him at Wingate and in gospel conversations. I've enjoyed his presence in fellowship with other believers through prayer together and singing and sitting under the teaching of his word. I've experienced him. I've loved him. I've invested in him. And he invests in me all the time. And I can say like David that he has put joy in my heart. Better. I would trade everything. I would trade everything for the joy of Jesus. 
It's better than food or alcohol can provide. It's better than gambling or sex can provide. It's better than sports or comedy can provide. It's better than family or jobs can provide. Being with Jesus is the best thing. It's the most worthy thing. Honoring Jesus, catching glimpses of his goodness and his glory, his radiance of his nature. This is the consuming passion of David's life. And it should be the consuming passion of every believer's life. Do we desire Jesus like this? Does he put more joy in your heart? Does he put more peace in your heart? This is a description of a believer, what we see here in 6, 7, and 8. This is a description of a believer. I mean, do you see this? That when we're filled with all the fullness of God, we're not cold and heartless. We're not just intellectuals. But neither are we stupid and aloof and silly. We are filled with joy. We are filled with peace. We are filled with love. We are filled with assurance because our God who loves us does not let us down. Because our God who loves us, he has earned our trust. So we trust fully in him. We trust fully in him. We love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we enjoy his light in peace. We lie down and sleep in the comfort and rest through all the distress, through all the things, because Christ alone, because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is no safer place than in the presence of Jesus Christ. What great comfort for us that he has chosen to dwell in us. There is no safer person on earth at any moment, even at the edge of a sword or the edge of a spear, spear than, than the person who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You are safe. Your eternity is secure. Your hope is firm. Your faith is founded. Will you trust God for your salvation? And will you enjoy him with your life? Those are the questions I'll leave you with. Is he your great joy? And is he your hope for salvation? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for answering me when I call. Oh, God of my righteousness. You have given me relief in my distress. I pray that you would be gracious because you are gracious. That you would be gracious to me and hear my prayer. God, I see men all around. I see people all around who, who turn honor to shame. Who love vain words and vanity and seek after lies. But God, I know that you have set apart the godly for yourself. God, I know that you hear your people when we call. God, I think about those who might have bad intentions for your people. 
God, I pray for their wisdom. I pray that they would be angry and not sin. I pray that they would stay where they are. I pray for protection for your saints across the world. And I pray for justice when they are persecuted. God, and I pray for those who are far from you. They would believe on your sacrifice. That they would reject every offer of this world, every offer of the enemy. And that they would see the truth, that their eyes would be opened by your spirit, that their ears would be opened by your spirit, and that they would put their trust in you, Lord. God, I pray that you would let us be a part of that. God, we know that people come to know you because of hearing and hearing through your word. God, let us be proclaimers of your word. That people would put their trust in the Lord. And God, let that be true of your church. God, I pray that there would not be some false church here existing for the sake of organization, but there would be a church here that trusts in you. God, there are many who say, who will show us some good. God, you are the good. So God, we ask to see the light of your face upon us. We ask to feel the warmth of the light of your face upon us. God, we can say in truth, we can say with experience at our side, that you have put more joy in our hearts. God, you have put more joy in our hearts than we ever had with grain and wine, than we ever had with wealth or status or accomplishments. God, you have put more joy in our hearts. I pray that we would pursue you as a people of joy. We'd be driven by this joy of the gospel. God, let it be true for us. Help us to be a people of peace because in peace we can both lie down and sleep. God, we can do that in the comforts of our air-conditioned home here in Union County and we could do that if our life was on the line in Afghanistan. We could lay down and sleep because we are secure in your hands. For you alone, O Lord, make me, make us dwell in safety. Oh God, we thank you for your promises. We pray this in your name. Amen.